So the conversation surrounding drug use is fairly complicated. It's tough to discuss drug use without also discussing and addressing how this nation has handled mental health and addiction. In this episode, we're going to try and sift through the murky history of drug prohibition and what the general feeling is on legalization of drugs that are more controversial than marijuana. The point of this conversation is to ask ourselves if there is a vested public interest in the prohibition or regulation of drug use. Do certain laws save lives? Are there correlations to other crimes? Does drug use affect more than just oneself? Either way you slice it, there is no one solution that will make everyone happy. We must be better about dealing with those who grew up during a time when mental health was rarely discussed, let alone treated properly. Pharmaceutical companies have taken advantage of the marijuana fear-mongering, selling highly addictive opioids to treat pain that could easily be rendered tolerable with smoking a joint or eating an edible. How do we engage with people who find that action of smoking a joint, quote-unquote, gross, or maybe considering that person a druggie? To me, it starts with facts and figures. Science has been on the side of marijuana for decades, yet we still see it more regulated and controlled than alcohol and tobacco, which are both more damaging substances. Using these facts and figures in educational, not confrontational, ways, and giving people time and space to recognize benefits of using certain drugs, that might be the key. But by no means should this be a translation into heroin being sold to high schoolers as a substitute for Tylenol. But if there are ways to enhance our societal experience with one another and save lives, we should discuss how effective the current drug prohibition really is. All right, well, let's get into it. Enjoy the show. In my experience, conversations are best had with a glass of whiskey. Join me, Alan Kogan, as I engage in meaningful discussions while enjoying a glass of my favorite spirit. Welcome to the Kogan Conversation. Drug prohibition and regulation began as early as 1860 in the U.S., after many sellers of medicinal products were found to be mislabeling and adulterating with undisclosed narcotics and other harmful substances. Poison laws began requiring labels that indicated harmful effects and required some substances accessible only to licensed pharmacies. But prohibition was just getting started. The Opium War in Qing Dynasty China, a nearly three-year conflict with the United Kingdom, contesting trade issues with opium, led to an agreement between the U.S. and China to prohibit opium between their two countries. China's leaders were alarmed at the rate of addiction and were attempting to stem the nearly 40,000 chests of opium pouring into the nation. In fact, under Mao Zedong in the 1950s, about 10 million addicts were forced into compulsory treatment, dealers were executed, and opium-producing regions were planted with new crops. Due to the ever-growing issue with opium and its unregulated sales between the countries, the U.S. passed the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906 to require labeling on all drugs, including alcohol, cocaine, heroin, morphine, and cannabis. This enabled the crackdown of malicious sales and substances to the unsuspecting consumer but led to increasingly arbitrary government regulations that focused more on punishment than solving the rising issue of addiction. Following President Nixon's declaration of war on drugs in 1971, we fast forward to the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Act of 1986, a law emboldening federal enforcement of illicit drug use. The bill enacted a new mandatory minimum sentence for drugs, including marijuana. As well-intentioned as prohibition may be, Oregon offers us a new purview on how to potentially handle drug use. In 2020, Measure 110 was voted on via referendum and passed with 58% of the vote, effectively decriminalizing possession of small amounts of almost all hard drugs, including cocaine, LSD, meth, and others. Possession is now punishable by a $100 civil citation, which is no different than a traffic ticket. But it can be waived if you get a health screening from a recovery hotline. 
Advocates have applauded the expansion of funding and access to addiction treatment services using tax revenue from the state's existing pot industry, as well as from expected savings from a reduction in arrests and incarceration. Measure 110 took effect on February 1st of this year, but change is already taking effect. Fear of getting busted for a mental health issue or addiction issue no longer strangles a person into a spiral of anxiety, and help is far more readily available. Government working with local community advocates and building a network of resources and nonprofits has proven to encourage those struggling. Perhaps we need to witness how successful or unsuccessful Oregon is for the next few years before we make a fair judgment. Either way, there is a ton to discuss, and we hope you stick around to hear us flesh some of this all out. But first, a word from our most important sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our favorite drug, alcohol. We enjoy conversations more when there's a drink in our hand. Picture us at a fancy cigar lounge or the brandy room of the Titanic discussing a wide range of issues, solving all the world's problems as the masters of the universe that we are. For this conversation, I'm enjoying a glass of scotch, the Kilcarran Heavily Peated. Kilcarran is produced at the Glengyle Distillery in the Campbelltown region of Scotland. Founded in 1872 by William Mitchell after getting into a spat with his brother, with whom he owned Springbank Distillery in the same region, the Glengyle Distillery ran successfully until 1919 when sold due to the economic downturn following the war. It wasn't until 2000 that a company called Mitchell's Glengyle Limited was formed with the express purpose of renovating and rebuilding the original distillery and its famed scotch. The distillery, alongside Springbank, has since ran under the guidance of Headley Wright, a descendant of the Mitchell family. Production at this new incarnation didn't begin until 2004, with the first spirit becoming available in 2014. This Kilcarran heavily peated is of their second batch, coming in at 60.9%. The nose is full of crispy bacon and fresh citrus and tastes like roasted apples, thyme, and waves of peppery smoke. A very unique flavor, but worth the try, if you can find it. While we enjoy the occasional glass of whiskey, alcohol can be a very detrimental drug if overconsumed. Please join us in drinking responsibly and help spread awareness of local community advocates who aim to curb the awful disease known as addiction. Working together, we can help others get the help they so often don't even know exists. Now, let's get back to the show. Cheers! Prohibition is, for the most part, well-intentioned, right? Politicians generally, I mean, obviously corruption exists and power-hungry people who are narcissistic exist, and that's generally what a politician has been in our country, the way that our system has worked. That's not all of them, and I don't think that that, that, every, that means every piece of legislation that they propose is rooted in that corruption. I think there are some actual, true, good-hearted efforts to try to make society better or to try to save lives or something. And a good example would be alcohol prohibition uh, in the 30s. What led to that? I think it was a coalition of, of, of mothers, concerned mothers or something that because you have a lot of cases of domestic violence where men were beating women coming home from a hard day's work, going to the bar, getting trashed with their buddies and coming home and beating their wife because they didn't make the correct dinner. And alcohol tended to fuel that rage and make them act with inhibition. Now, the, the response was emotional. Okay, we're going to fight for this thing. We're going to lobby for the banning of alcohol because it's been proven to be a, a, a detrimental substance. But all that did was create more black market behind the scenes deals and moonshine and things cut with turpentine that were just even worse for you. Um, and the government later then found out that it was probably just better to have it legal, but then heavily regulate, leave it to the states and heavily tax. Kind of the same thing with cigarettes right now is that, the, you know, they call it a sin tax. You, you do tax alcohol or tobacco or nowadays marijuana as it comes to the forefront. So they get revenue from it rather than having to deal with the crime on the back end and try to, you know, have this Gestapo style 
Secret Service going around and destroying, you know, speakeasies that are operating illegally. Was that law good? Did that law save lives? Did it plummet domestic violence numbers? Even if it did, is it good for the long term? If if it if it curbed the issue in the short term, but long term created more issues and more it cost more money and cost more lives down the road because it wasn't a regulated entity. People are going to vote and lobby for things that are in the short term. They're not going to care. People who were alive during prohibition. That, that were supportive supportive of it, they're not around anymore. They don't, they're not here to see what we are right now. So I don't know what the, the, the best angle is on this. Prohibition is one of those weird things in our, I mean, it's still relatively recent history. Like it wasn't even a hundred years ago that alcohol was still, I mean, when did, when did, uh, get, when did it get repealed? 33? Yeah. So it hasn't even been a hundred years since it, it we were repealed uh, prohibition. And that's kind of crazy to think too, that that was like a, like a legit amendment to the constitution, right? That had to get like undone. Yeah, it was a massive undertaking to get it to be an amendment to the Constitution and then to repeal it as an amendment. It wasn't just a law. Back when we back when we we made amendments <laughs> yeah. to, to our Constitution and people could come together and, and vote on these things and uh, agree to certain things. There's something uh, I don't know. There's something kind of bygone era about that. Back when politicians were doing their jobs, I guess, and there was a movement of people rallying for a thing, and then it got passed. Was it good? I think we learned very quickly, and that's why we ended up getting repealed, that no, uh, organized crime, Al Capone, probably the, the most notable, running stuff out of uh, Chicago. I'm not super familiar. I might be talking out of my ass. I've seen the untouchables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you're right. And, and the organized crime aspect is kind of what I think is, is probably the most analogous thing to today. When you're looking at uh, probably the cartel is the most apparent example, um, but not just the cartel, but the the networks that exist in the United States for selling and distribution of drugs. I I, I know you've seen Breaking Bad and I, it's not 100% accurate for how things work, but it gave a, a, an intro into how these people operate and use innocent people to sell drugs and children are used. And there's a, there's a massive sex trafficking ring. There's a, a child trafficking ring. There's, you know, human trafficking is abundant when it comes to drug sales and manufacturing, but they have to do it under the radar in a very scummy way because it's illegal. So the question is then if we make it legal, do we then snuff out the bad that comes with it being illegal? And I, I, I don't, I'm not the kind of person who's going to swear by like, oh, the markets will figure it out. Like there's something to that, but like, I'm not a religious market kind of guy, but that, I don't know if that was attributed to the market, like a recent, this felt like two, maybe two years ago where there was like all these like deaths in like young people from using uh, vape pens. And there were just like unregulated market of, of, of vaporizers basically but then you go into like any walgreens and they're just be like entire swaths of the shelf that were just gone so they're like we're not selling vape stuff anymore there was just like this scare basically in the market they got rid of all this stuff i'm pretty sure they've since brought it back but was that just purely like private businesses deciding we don't want to sell this now or was that like some kind of ban that came through i don't even remember yeah I, well it was an attempted ban that scared the market it, it, the ban didn't get through uh and there there was just it was a lot of political theater around you know the talk of banning it's almost analogous to what's going on with menthol cigarettes right now is that well there's no clear data on whether or not vaporized nicotine or flavor you know i know a lot of kids do mountain dew flavor or cotton candy flavor vaporized juice you know the difference between that and smoke 
is is water vapor and particulates better for you? Uh, no one knows. And I, I, a few people, people caught some issues with their lungs. Um, they traced it back to just a faulty vape pen that wasn't QC'd properly. Uh, some of the vape pens have batteries that have exploded in people's pockets, but so have phones. So, you know, I, I think it's just this new thing that has little pain points. And statistically, they're not currently dangerous. They're, you're not going to have a vape pen that's going to blow up or give you bronchitis or a fungus or something. That's not going to happen. But statistically, we know that cigarettes will give you could give you cancer. I think in 20 years time, we'll probably have better data that shows, okay, vape pens, this is the generation that used them. There's going to be studies and maybe it's going to come out that they had no ill effect or it's going to come out that they had some ill effect or it's going to come out that they were just slightly better than cigarettes. I don't know. But yeah, so let's talk about menthol because menthol cigarettes now, which tobacco is of 100% legal product for anyone above the age of, well, now 21, it used to be 18. Menthol cigarettes have disproportionately affected the black community, apparently. That's the that's what they're running on. But it is interesting that they've singled out just that flavor. Like, it's just the FDA trying to put a, trying to prohibit them, right? And is that just like, like a general association with like the ill effects they have on a specific community of people? Or is that just not been acknowledged whatsoever? And it's just like menthols. I, th- I think, I think, what I read was that Democrats in support of this ban, uh, they're, they're, they're saying that the black community has been disproportionately affected by basically nefarious sale and marketing of, of cigarettes that at some point menthols were told, were, we were told that they were healthier or that the people of the black community in, in these urban areas that are usually attributed to people who are lower income and i.e. black and Hispanic, they don't have access to as much information or they don't know any better. I'm not agreeing with that. I, I just That's kind of the, the, the sense I got that because they don't know any better, don't have access to information, that therefore they're more vulnerable and therefore we should ban menthol so that they don't get cancer. That, that feels so like gross. I agree. It feels like it, it, this like veiled good intention of like, oh, we need to help this uh, underprivileged community by banning the things that they're more likely to smoke and they don't know any better. It just feels so like finger waggy and, and condescending and yeah, just gross overall. And that it's, it was, it's so strange. Like, it's not like a push to like ban cigarettes, prohibit the sale of cigarettes. It's just, yeah, let's, let's target menthols because it affects this one group of people. It feels very strange. Well, this kind of bleeds into our overarching discussion because alcohol and tobacco are for all intents and purposes, legal. They're obviously they're restricted in certain ways by age. They're restricted by uh, how they are sold, especially state by state. Marijuana is only recently becoming more readily available, and I mean, at least medicinally, is widely attributed for. Okay, that okay, this makes sense for in every state. Um, especially for cancer patients and whatnot. I think even even the most diehard conservatives are on board with letting people who are dying get access to different options. Now, recreationally, it's becoming available and you can get, there's this dispensaries that you just go buy at the store, just like a CVS and grab a pipe and smoke pot and it doesn't matter. Contrasting alcohol and tobacco with marijuana and mushrooms and I guess you could make the argument for LSD, but you start getting into the research chemicals, the the synthesized things, the you know the ecstasies, the methamphetamine, heroin, things that are really tough to to get off of if you become addicted, and can be easily overdosed or easily misused unless you exactly know what you're doing. If you have a cigarette or two, you're not going to kill yourself. If you have a drink or two, you're not going to kill yourself. So I think the question is, how do we look at these drugs and how do we handle them as a society? I don't know if 
prohibition is the answer, but I do know that rehabilitation and helping people probably should be at least on the conversation table. You, you point out these these like alcohol and tobacco versus things like marijuana and MDMA and and mushrooms and things that are still scheduled as like as as illicit substances federally. But like, where is the same talk of like so cigarettes cause cancer and kill people? But that's not even like the leading cause of death in the U.S. This is the U.S. where you can go have McDonald's for three meals a day and the leading cause of death is heart disease. And it's like there is a direct correlation between those two things. And we don't talk about like prohibiting fast food the way we do talking about like menthol cigarettes or like taxing fast food like we do taxing like alcohol in states. And it's this very weird. It's it's got to be like a cultural thing. Is that an example of if we just let things run as like the market is like, yeah, McDonald's is like the biggest restaurant chain in this country. And the leading cause of death is heart disease. If we just let drugs run wild and anyone and everyone can go and buy some cocaine at their their corner store like we have drive through stick a needle in my arm heroin dosage like would the leading cause of death then be overdoses like i don't know like that's a it's a weird what if scenario you know every month grant and i will tackle an important topic while enjoying a glass of whiskey if you don't agree with our opinions on these issues great we want to hear from you and hear your side of the story our goal is to understand different perspectives and engage in conversations that matter without regressing into the same division that exists in our hyper-partisan politics we can and must do better in finding common ground discussions breed solutions and the Cogan conversation is a platform that welcomes to respectful discourse if you'd like to offer your take on an upcoming issue or episode please reach out to us on social media or head over to our website and send us a message. Don't you want to know what topics are coming up and when an episode is releasing on your favorite podcast platform? Subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, following us on Spotify, and of course following us on social media helps immensely. By the way, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also head over to our website and sign up for our email list so you never miss out on any important information or our upcoming monthly newsletter. And now, back to the show. Well, I think I think part of it comes down to education. And I, this episode isn't going to be a presentation of of, of do drugs. It's okay. That, that, that's the farthest from what this is. This is more so a discussion of the philosophy of whether or not it actually is counterproductive to have drugs legal or le- or illegal. Right? If if we had access to cocaine, would more people do cocaine? Like you said before, would there be more overdoses? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it would be. Maybe we'd be better off by self regulating. That education aspect of, of teaching and, and showcasing the good that could come from this would be for the generations that existed. You know, your parents, my parents, their parents, you know, drugs were bad. Drugs are bad, kids. Don't do drugs. And I'm not saying that drugs are are, are good. Just do them whenever. They're, I think with anything, I think the same with cheeseburgers. You know, you talked about fast food. I love cheeseburgers, but I if I ate one every day, I'm going to probably have a heart attack at age 40. So in 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 responsible quantities with support systems and making sure that you're you have your wits about you and, and nothing's going to happen, that you can do whatever you want to your body so long as you're not hurting someone else. And this this was kind of the the argument of the prohibition with alcohol is that well, alcohol caused a lot of domestic violence. And there's actually 
a lot of crimes that are connected to drug use and alcohol use. About 17% of state prisoners, 18% federal inmates have have said they committed their current offense to obtain money for drugs or to obtain drugs themselves. Uh, how many times do you have an addict who is who needs money, who needs something, and they end up committing a crime, whether it be violent or not, to get that money? And if it's violent, then you know that's a problem. But that's a that's case by case. And really, I mean, all I, I, this is another number from the Bureau of Justice Statistics that about 21% of all crime can be rooted back to drug abuse and addiction. About 40% of people locked up for property crimes and 14% of those incarcerated for violent crimes reported that they committed their most serious offense for drug-related reasons. You know, that's not to say that drugs are causing this, but you might even be able to tamper down the crime rate or certain criminal action if you made these drugs less of a boogeyman i i think we got to dismantle this myth of like the quote-unquote gateway drug of marijuana like i don't buy it i don't think anybody buys that anymore oh you start off smoking some weed and then you move on to the stronger stuff it's like i would argue i would argue the bigger gateway drug is a is a prescribed pharmaceutical created you know oxycodone oxycotton because if, if you if you have bad health insurance or you lose your job and you had surgery or, or something and you run out of oxycodone oxycotton percocet vitamin it in whatever you're gonna be wanting to get something and guess what the next best option is to go find someone down the street who's selling heroin oh surprise it's cut with fentanyl and now you died that's the bigger gateway drug is that you're oh i i you know what i could just I, i've been told on 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 tv and things that uh, opiates are just you know or uh, oxycodone is just legalized heroin so you know i'll just go get some heroin uh I'm not saying that heroin, you know, we're talking about this because maybe heroin being legal and making sure that where people are taking the correct dosage and getting the right stuff cut with the right things or not cut at all, I should say, then um, maybe that would save lives. I would argue that the bigger saving of lives, whether it be pro from pro, not prohibition, but would be from letting people seek help and show that this help can and does exist. Isn't that something they've been testing out in some cities, like the needle exchange programs that like, that's just to eliminate transmitted diseases like HIV, like that, like dirty needles are probably like the one of the worst culprits of that, right? Well, this is one of the biggest uphill battles that I actually, I faced with myself when I used to work in at the courthouse, working with people who who were dealing with addiction is that I, I started catching wind of these services that were just pop-up tent kiosks in the city of a, a needle exchange. And I, I kind of came to grips with what I initially had thought like, oh boy, that sounds like it might be too much of an encouragement for people who are doing heroin. I don't know if I agree with us just giving out needles, but the more I did the research, the more I understood why, and the more I understood that it actually saves lives, that actually helps people. It, and then in addition, the side effect is that you create a contact so that you're, you're going to that person who's giving you needles and their job is to not only give you a needle, but also to say, Hey, are you good? How, you know, how are you feeling? Do you, do you, do you think, you know, you want to talk to someone about this? Because the end goal is to get you not addicted. But if you are addicted and while you're doing it, if you're going to do drugs, be safe about it. And that's the whole point of the needle exchange program is that one, like you said, to, to try to curb the HIV epidemic and the AIDS epidemic, because a lot of people share needles and needles are not cheap and to make sure people aren't overdosing and sharing and there's even like safe spaces to do heroin with people who are watching over you to make sure you're good you know is that encouraging i think it it probably is the best of the options because if it, the drug is illegal and people are addicted and the, the the massive overdose crisis that's happening especially i you know i don't even want to know the numbers during the pandemic people who are left to their own devices or god forbid feel suicidal and have to kill themselves because they can't get their heroin one of the things that i'm interested in talking about kind of leads us to the path of oregon oregon legalized all drugs 
just outright legalized them all and said that uh, we're basically going to charge you a $100 fee and it's like a parking ticket. And if you uh, go in and say, hey, I, I'd like to talk to someone or, or talk to a recovery uh, support system or, or whatever, they waive the fee and there's nothing on your record and you're good to go. So the, the sale and manufacturing is still illegal. You cannot manufacture meth in Oregon, but they're using that revenue, the, the, at least the selling of marijuana and lesser drugs, and also the citations to potentially fund addiction services and you know resources for that nature. But maybe this is the answer. It would. Do you think that it would be smart for us to maybe explore? or maybe Oregon's the path um, to, to legalize all drugs and not just legalize drugs, but legalize the creation and selling of them, regulate it so that if you want to have a meth dispensary or LSD dispensary, fine, but it has to be made, you know, you have, it has to be pure and safe and not cut with any crap. So people are consuming it safely and uh, tax the living shit out of it. Make it so that now, okay, well, maybe the government uses that revenue specifically for uh, better policing or mental health services or behavioral health systems along those lines, you know, towards rehab, rehabilitation in, in, in a general sense. Would that work? I mean, I, I would like to think that it would. I just, it's so new and it's so like unlike anything that I've even heard of any other state doing. So this is a case study. Let's treat it exactly as that. Let's just not interfere with this shit and just like five years down the line let's just monitor it and see how it works i mean we've already seen with places like colorado is like one of the first to legalize marijuana across the board like they did exactly that with marijuana it was like all right you can sell it here but we're gonna we're gonna regulate the shit out of it and we're gonna tax the shit out of it and then their state uh revenue like blew up it was huge yeah they actually gave some more tax money back to people because they had a surplus yeah it just makes sense it's just like can you trust the bureaucracy to then like get all of this and then put it actually like fulfill that and put it into these things like you you would hope that it, it works that well and it's so big it, it transcends even like misappropriation colorado's marijuana sales exceeded almost i just looked it up two billion dollars in 2020 so $2 billion, that's massive. The question now becomes, and I think there's a lot of more debate to become like what government power and what government can spend on, but how do we hold them accountable to spend on the right things? Because I, I can see, I mean, God, the mayor in our hometown spends money that we have a surplus on, on a trolley that we don't need. When that money could have so much better gone to rehabilitation services and, and, and not just creating, I, I don't... I don't want the government creating their own services. I think it'd be so much better for them to invest in the services that exist because there's a lot of beautiful nonprofits that could really use a bump, a contract from the government, working together with the government. I, I'm not opposed to the government having some facilitatory, you know, moving some chess pieces and playing a larger role and saying, hey, we're just up here with the the, the, the resources, but you guys are the, are, are the ones who are the experts in the field. We're going to use you and, and we want you to help us so we can solve this issue rather than the government just coming in and saying, oh, we're going to, you know, spend the next five years filling potholes. I, how do we how do we keep that accountable? I, really? I mean, other than voting, it's being vocal and being educational about this topic because there are ways to save lives and an outright ban of things is not going to help that it's just going to make us look at big government and say okay you're just going to ban it great yeah i mean just the, just in oregon alone like the idea that you could curb these needless convictions like drug offenses and and then also like curbing trafficking in general like i, I it's doubling down on the stigmatization doubling down on these really bad like policing and, and crime bill bullshit that puts 
basically innocent people in prison and overcrowds it and and just it it all for profit too like it, it's it's not like benefiting any kind of like moral high ground of like oh well drugs are bad and we need to keep them illegal it's like no there you don't have the moral high ground anymore I, I think the end of the day too is if if your response to someone who does drugs or who's an addict or who has committed a crime oh well they're scum and lock lock them up i only understand that if it's someone who is like a, a, a rampant child molester or rapist or killer, okay, that I'll, I'm on board with you 100% of the way. They, they are scum and how dare they? They probably have no place in society ever again. But for someone who just got caught up in some heroin and whether it sold it, made it. Or prescribed it by their doctor and then they lost their job. Like that's a that's a tale that is just, this keeps coming up. Exactly. And so we have to figure out a way to make it more commonplace for us to take a step back and ask the questions that matter about this human being. That, you know, isn't the goal to have more productive people in society? Isn't isn't the goal to have more community and making sure that, hey, my neighbor needs help. My neighbor could help make the world better with something that he does at his job or, or whatever. So God forbid he makes a mistake. One One small step that just happens to set off a path of, you know, of a shit show for him. Maybe that that landmine that he's about to step on doesn't have to happen. Maybe that landmine can be curbed by instead of saying, oh, you're a druggie who is now a criminal, we can we can help you and get you to the place that that, that OK, you can get help. You can yeah get served actual rehab and actual help rather than being perceived criminal. One of the biggest stigmas around criminal justice is the word criminal. What de I mean, define criminal. There's 70,000 layers of criminal. I mean, from robbery to armed robbery, that right there, there's a big difference between armed robbery and robbery. And and they're not the same. And even, even in that, case by case, does that one mistake, you, you drugs aside, does that one mistake define your life? And if if your react if your reaction to that as a as a citizen in this country is just well they you know they they made their bed so they should lay in it, okay they, they obviously personal accountability should exist and we should make sure people are held accountable. But at the same time, there are external forces that make them make decisions too, and your negative Nancy attitude to the fact that you know oh well blah blah blah, blah, blah they're just bad people well they don't have to be. And you saying that is going to perpetuate the fact that they are bad people. They're going to continue to be in this echo chamber of, I'm a criminal, I'm a criminal, I'm a criminal. So they're going to have habitual criminality. The system is a cycle. And drug use being one of the, the things that, you know, if we want to have people who are able to do recreational drugs and just do it whenever they want, that's fine. But the services that need to exist for those who can't do that need to make sure we're breaking this mold and saving lives and, and stopping the perpetual cycle of whatever the hell you want to call our system. I think I want to point out that there's a line between, oh, they made the decision, they made their bed and they should lay in it. There's like that. And then I don't want to be that person who's 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 trying to put a ban on, on menthol cigarettes because a community of people doesn't know any better. Like, I don't want to like take responsibility off of people because I want to give people more credit and I think if I think if overall we gave people more credit for the decisions, they would make better decisions for their self, themselves and the people around them. Your decisions have consequences and you are responsible for your own decisions. And yes, there are extenuating circumstances in life, but I don't want that to get mixed up with saying like, oh, they made their bed, they laid it. Because I, I have tremendous sympathy for the person who got some surgery on their back, were prescribed some pills, and then just went downhill from there. It's someone else telling them that, 
taking the responsibility off their shoulders and, and saying, no, this is what's good for you. We're going to give this to you and then turn around and blame them for when they're sticking needles in their arm. Well, and, and even at the same time, that person who has back surgery who can self-medicate with completely legal substances like alcohol, you know what I mean? The, the funny part about that is that you can go home and drink yourself to death and there's not, not one law against it. And this is cultural. And I, I, don't, I don't believe that legislation can change culture. I think culture can change legislation. And that's why we see banning of certain things because the counterculture of the 60s and LSD and whatnot, that came to the forefront. And now all of a sudden, all these research chemicals are banned. You know, is that a good thing? Has it saved lives? Maybe, but maybe that in the long term, more lives are lost because we focus too much on the, the punishment. I don't know. There's a, little, there's a lot going on here. I know there's a lot of you know implications when it comes to criminal justice, when it comes to homelessness, when it comes to mental illness, and it's all symbiotic. But at the end of the day, I, I truly believe from what I've looked up, from what we've talked about, that I think that the better course of action will be going towards what Oregon has done. You should be able to to do whatever the hell you want to, so long as it's not hurting someone else. So if you if you do cocaine and go beat someone up, I don't. I'm not going to blame the cocaine. I'm going to blame you. You have the right to ingest what you want to. It's it's your choice as a human being, and I believe in individual freedom. You know, but I'm I'm also a big fan of having systems in place to help people if they don't. You know, if they can't make good choices. <laughs> This podcast is a work of passion and it's completely self-funded. We want to continue providing this platform dedicated to free thought and conversation, but we kindly ask that you show your support. Patreon isn't just a platform where you can give a small monthly donation. It also gives you exclusive access to extended, unedited episodes, bonus content, as well as creative input into whatever we cover. Being a supporter on Patreon makes you a member of the Kogan Conversation family and helps us continue this passion project. For just a few bucks a month, you can help us grow. The more we grow, the more perks can come to being a supporter on Patreon. Head over to our website and learn how you can sign up. This episode concludes our conversation on recreational drug use. We might return to this topic in the future, but for now, we're moving on. Next up, we'll discuss the death penalty. First episode will be available August 9th, so stay tuned. Do you agree or disagree with capital punishment? We look forward to fleshing it all out. In the meantime, we would greatly appreciate sharing this podcast with friends and family and help to spread our message of the importance of nuance and understanding. During these divisive political and social times, we want to find ways to actually have conversations without assuming the worst in each other. And what better way to do it than with a glass of whiskey? If you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, follow, and share us across all social media and podcast platforms. We appreciate your listenership. I'm Alan. And I'm Grant. Thank you for listening to The Kogan Conversation. This podcast is about engaging with different perspectives, values, and ideas. We want to learn how to progress conversations on important topics without assuming the worst in each other. Each month, we will tackle a new topic while enjoying a glass of our favorite spirit and shed light on the beauty of good conversation. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers.